Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm your host, Zach. Last month, we talked about the history, foundations, and a bit of the current state of natural language processing, or NLP. For people who aren't already experts on NLP, that episode might be a helpful introduction to the topic, and you might consider switching over and listening to that episode before you continue on this one. Natural language processing gives us a data science framework to think about using, understanding, and even generating snippets of natural language, the sorts of languages that you, I, and most of the people you know and who are going to listen to this episode speak, as opposed to programming languages like Python. As we discussed last episode, it's a framework that naturally lends itself to a wide variety of intuitive, powerful, and useful products. For instance, consider, throughout most of human history, If you've wanted to interact with a business, that probably involved you talking directly to them. That might have happened synchronously, for instance, with an in-person meeting or a phone call, or asynchronously, like by mail or more recently email. But either way, the interaction was largely between two humans. That's not to say there haven't been attempts to automate communications. Some of them have honestly been fairly successful. You can think of interactive phone interfaces, which you can use to answer simple queries or get in contact with a more specialized human member of the team, or a company's app, which might automate straightforward workflows like ordering a pizza without making you call a restaurant. For the use cases they work for, those solutions are powerful, but their weakness is their inflexibility. If an interactive phone tree gives you options one through four, You can't press five and expect it to solve a problem you have, but that they didn't list. With NLP, the flexibility expands dramatically. You can start imagining entire interactions between a human and a business where a machine learning powered tool carries out most of, or potentially all of, the conversation. This episode, we're going to try to envision that sort of scenario in a little more detail, and we're going to talk with the conversation AI team at Clavia. Let's do a quick round of introductions. Who are you? What do you do at Clavio and on the team? We'll go ahead and start with Smith. Hey, thanks for having me. I am Smith and I'm a machine learning engineer at Clavio. I've been here for about seven months now. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Next up, Tianxing. Hi, I'm Tianxing. I'm also a machine learning engineer on the Conversation AI team. I've been here almost a year. Very nice. Next up, Dave. Welcome back. Thanks, Michael. Great to be back. Uh, I'm Dave Shaw. I'm a lead data scientist on the Conversational AI team here at Clavio. I've uh, been here for about a year now. And last up, he was on the most recent episode. David, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm David Lustig, and I've been a data scientist at Clavio for a little over a year now. All right. Thank you all for coming on the show. have a few new voices and a few that are returning. So, Zach, do you want to do the honors to start us off? Absolutely. So, let's start at the beginning. As we've often discussed on this podcast, a lot of the most useful data science work ultimately stems from a specific need or use case. What was the business need that motivated the work that we're here to talk about today? I guess in brick and mortar stores, shopping is really personal. If you have questions about a product, you can find someone who works at the store and ask them. Similarly, sort of in the online world, we've kind of come to expect to be able to find answers to our questions really easily. We can Google things, browse Reddit, text our friends, and get pretty rapid answers to almost anything. Yet there's this sort of gap when we think about a lot of online businesses. When you have a question, you're often left waiting on hold, maybe sending an email and hoping for a response within seven days, or potentially even writing 
a really bad review to get the business's attention so that they can help you with their problem. For the businesses, it's like super important to keep customers engaged so they don't do things that write bad reviews and they have a, a pleasant experience. But it can be really hard if you have a large volume of inbound messages. And so I think the, the general business use case is to be able to help customers get answers to questions easily while also helping businesses to better manage this support volume. Yeah, I would like to add to that as well. So specifically for Klaviyo, we have this two-way conversation app for SMS. And one common problem is that it's a one-to-one, so it's not very scalable. And in order to solve that scaling problem, that's that's how our team comes in. So it sounds like this is a problem for all kinds of businesses and not just the Klaviyo customers that you mentioned. So before we get into how we address this for our customers, let's talk about the problem generally. What is the current traditional state of automated responses and customer communication today? I think a lot of uh, traditional automation are like tree structured. So you think about kind of the IVR systems that you might call into when you try to call a customer support or even in some like chats that you see on websites or through SMS, you'll see that they're basically they present you with like a menu of options and you have to either like click on a specific option and that navigates through a tree structure or you like, you know, reply one to do this, reply two to do that, which is still kind of like a tree structure. That's been the standard up until kind of the last couple of years when we've seen more flexible and natural language based approaches starting to take off. So obviously we have a business need here. You have a problem that you're trying to solve. When you're building software and you're doing data science work that powers that software, there are often multiple ways to solve a problem like this. What was the initial way that you thought to approach this problem that you're facing? So I guess when we were first thinking about this, we thought it might make sense to create some sort of chatbot. And the idea there was to use cosine similarity based on embeddings from inbound messages and just reply with the response that was sent to the most similar inbound message that had already been responded to. And the idea here is that this chatbot could learn over time from each business. And as they get more inbound messages and send more outbound messages, it would get better over time. How well did that approach work? So I guess playing around with the approach, it worked okay. And you could create some really cool demos if you knew what to plug into it. But it was was really finicky for shorter messages. It might over-index on a specific word. And along with this, there there wasn't really a clear way to measure performance over a large data set. We couldn't tell the model that it was doing a good job at actually providing relevant responses because it was just responding with the most similar one. So especially for customers that may have had very few inbound messages, it would just... If you only had one message, it would basically for any incoming message would respond with the response to that first message, which is not optimal. So that wasn't great. And then there's also this like, added complexity of storing all of these different embeddings and being able to access them quickly at a large scale. It makes sense that you explored some alternative options. So I guess I'm curious, what came next? What approach was the next one that you explored? And what were the key differences? And why did you think it might work better? So I guess from the initial chatbot, 
it became clear that we needed a good way to actually measure the performance and how well the model is doing at providing relevant responses. So instead of doing this sort of unsupervised approach, we started reading through all of the inbound messages to better understand exactly how both our customers and their customers were using text. And this exercise led to the creation of this intent taxonomy, which we could use to label inbound messages. And from reading these, we decided it might be a better approach to group them into categories and then have the task of classifying an inbound message into one of these categories, as opposed to kind of assuming that we don't know what categories exist as we were in the, the first approach. Yeah, and also there's a challenge that come, came with it as well. I and mean, the challenge is that how do you know the intent taxonomy that you come up with is actually the problem you're trying to solve? And for the initial release, we actually made some pretty wild assumptions, assuming that we are actually capturing a list of intents that cover most of the inbound messages received in production, which is something that we cannot easily verify until we actually release the feature itself. So just like every software product, we have to kind of focus on scoping down the products to uh, the MVP, roll it out, and then start to collect production data and then use that to evaluate our model performance and also take a step back and say, are we trying to solve the right problem? Are the list of intents are the ones we actually care about? Do they accurately represent the intents that actually show up in production? Yeah, related to what Tianxin was just talking about, when you look at the distribution of messages as a whole across all users of Clavio, you see like a very long tail of different kinds of things that people ask about. But if you look at any specific Clavio customer, the tail is not as long. The use cases tend to be a little more identifiable and concentrated. So one of the trade-offs we have to make is how do we both provide good functionality to all customers without kind of diluting the specificity too much? Yeah, that exact tension definitely makes me curious about some of the, the underlying data science work here. Obviously, you've moved from a a fairly general problem to a much more specific problem of given an inbound message from a business's customer, figure out why they sent that message and then use that to help suggest a useful response. The data science work here is very important. Before we get into all of the details, I think it's useful just to make things a little more concrete for people who haven't worked with this data like you have, just to understand how that might actually surface to a business that's using the output of the model. So when you, how were these intents that you're classifying meant to translate into something tangible that a business can use during their marketing workflow? Um, so one use case that we have right now is called suggested responses. So we're, for example, let's say a business receives a message asking for a coupon. We identify that the message is asking for a coupon. We record what the business replied to them. And now the next time they get a similar message asking for a coupon, we would just suggest the exact same message that they responded with earlier. This helps the businesses to respond to all of these kinds of messages with just a single click. Yeah, I would like to kind of add on to what Smith said as well. One of the biggest assumptions that we made was that there are also patterns in two-way SMS conversations. So for a business, when they respond to a certain type of intents, they tend to respond in a similar way 
So that's why when we surface the suggested response, it's based on their historical response to the same intent. And the specific use case would be what Smith described and also just save the headache of the customer or the business copy pasting the same answer to, uh, to their customers answering the same question over and over again. Yeah, and I guess building off that, that's kind of how that way of thinking sort of transformed how we were thinking about what we're calling intense. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to think about the term intent, I guess. And you might imagine one way would be, what is the customer saying? And you can assign some sort of value to that. But the real intent that we're interested in is what response are they hoping to get? And that was informative throughout the process to be able to make a model that is actually helpful for businesses as opposed to identifying the thing the customer is, is saying. Maybe <laughs> a little bit abstract, but yeah. Does anyone have a good example that might help illustrate that? Yeah, I can take a stab at it. One of the intents we have is a return policy. So that is corresponding to the inbound message. So a customer might send to their business, hey, what is your return policy? The ultimate problem we're trying to solve is to automate the response so that the business won't have to copy paste like, here's our return policy. You can return within two days or something. And also note that that response is different for every single company that we work with. One business might have a different policy um, from another one. So we want to be able to cater to every single business that we help. And so we use the suggestion response to kind of learn from their historical responses within that business and then use that to kind of automate the process and send out the response that way. So we've motivated a really challenging and interesting problem here. And I think it's time to get into some of the details of how this was actually done. On this show, we've spent a fair amount of time thinking about why natural language data is complicated and tricky to work with. But I think it's worth spending even a little more time to hone in a little further. You aren't just using natural language here, you're using text message data. Are there any unique complexities that come with the territory when you're working with text messages? Yeah, one problem that we saw from looking at the production data we saw was that a lot of the text messages are context dependent. And by context, I mean, we would have to know the text message before and after the one that we saw in a conversation setting in order to really understand what that particular message is saying. An example would be a message like, is it working now? It's that message by itself doesn't actually bring us much value because we don't know what it's referring to. But if we have a way to look at the entire conversation and get the context around it, then we might be able to know what, what that message is referring to, whether there's value to analyzing it. Text messages are also very different from how we generally speak or write documents about you can see there are a lot of abbreviations, there are so many typos, and these messages tend to generally be grammatically incorrect. So that just makes it very difficult to work with text messages because of the fact that they are so, so different than normal language. Yeah, you also see instances of people texting things like URLs, uh, emojis, things that are, are not natural language strictly defined and 
depending on the model that you're using, it might cause issues with like, you know, the character set not being recognized or the URL being like difficult to tokenize. Maybe it creates like lots and lots of like small tokens and that like clogs up your machine learning model and makes it take a long time to run when the original message is actually not that big. So a lot of like kind of like corner cases that you have to consider. Yeah, another thing is that uh, when people text, they often have multiple things they want to talk about, but they kind of put everything into one message. And this actually contradicted one of the assumptions we made, which is that for every inbound message, there is a top intent. But it's true for some cases, but in other cases where they're talking about multiple things, that translates into having multiple intents. That's a problem that is not very easy to solve. Our current approach is to assign some kind of priority when we notice there are different intents and try to resolve them by picking the most important one out of them. But as you can imagine, the process is relatively subjective. Different annotators might disagree. And also, it's not very scalable. So an alternative, would, a longer-term alternative, would be to invest more time to design a system that can support a multi-intent message. Uh, and just to make it a little bit more concrete, an example would be someone saying, why is this coupon not working? I need a new one. But that message have two intents. One is a reporting a coupon problem. Another intent would be requesting a new coupon. So here, how do you assign priority to them based on the customer reaction? Perhaps requesting a new coupon is the main intent because if you can respond with an intent, it doesn't, or if you can respond with a coupon, it doesn't really matter whether the previous coupon worked or not. Were there any surprises in this data, like any text messages that you just really didn't expect to see uh, going into this project? So for me, at least, I was very surprised with how mean some people are. Some of these text messages were very aggressive when there were problems. And I was shocked <laughs> by the way people were treating the businesses and the employees who needed to respond to the, the messages when there was a big issue. Yeah, it's probably important to keep in mind, though we're talking about machines running the conversation entirely at some point in the future, people are actually responding today. Keep that in mind when you send a text message. So I imagine that a lot of our audience has never built an intent classification model before. Generally speaking, what is an intent classification model and how does it work? So an intent classification model basically just takes in a piece of text, be it an SMS message, an email, any piece of text, and then it just classifies it into one of the predefined categories that we have. And now all these predefined intents is up to us to decide, people who build the model. And they could be as general as this message is talking about orders, or it could be as specific as this message just said that uh, someone just made an order. Yeah, I think it's helpful to keep in mind that even though we call it intent classification in the context of natural language processing and dialogue systems, really the, 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 the intents are just you know categories that we as data scientists have defined by doing some exploratory research. So it, it is just classification to some extent. But then, you know, in terms of like actually training the models. There's a lot of discretion there for the, the researchers to explore. There's obviously like a trade-off between performance and cost in terms of both like the labor cost of a data scientist like doing the research to develop the best possible model as well as like compute cost, right? As you know, I think 
Uh, you discussed on the last podcast, there are very high-performing high models that are very expensive to train. And really, there are only like a few companies or a few institutions in the world that have the resources to train those. So we have to make those kinds of decisions in the process of uh, doing the research of which, you know, which models are we going to use? Can we leverage pre-trained models and then just fine-tune those so that we get most of the benefit of the training on like massive data sets, but takes much less expense and time to fine-tune it to the specific use case that we have? So it sounds like a big part of this type of a project is determining the classes that you're going to divide things into when you classify intents. And we've talked about before classifying things based on the response that people would want to give. What was this process of determining the classes and figuring out the intents that you want for the model? It was a very lengthy iterative process. I think we've probably gone through over 10 different structures of intents. When we initially started, we had this sort of maybe naive assumption that every single message can be fit into some intent. And so we ended up with this massive intent structure that had over like 300 intents and included really random things like identifying that someone's grandmother died. And I don't know why people are messaging that in, but we decided to bucket that into an intent. And clearly, this is not super scalable and doesn't make a ton of sense when you have these like one-off messages. We shouldn't be assigning them intent. And so then it was after we got through that initial process, it became clear that there were a few top intents and we wanted to restrict our classification to those. And the process there involved a lot of collaboration between the team and then also customer interviews, talking to PMs and understanding how customers are using the product and how we should be thinking about intents and then rebucketing things accordingly. Yeah, I think there are also potentially different ways to approach it. So when we approach this problem, we also went with a global model, meaning that we came up with a list of intents that fit any business that we support, but that assumption may or may not be accurate as well. Um, there are definitely common intents, um, like greeting intent would be very common that fit every use case, but they're also sometimes very specific intents that, that don't show up for all business, but a subset of the businesses. Maybe they're very industry specific, like e-commerce or insurance, or they could also be very account specific Maybe a, a business always receive a certain type of messages related to a product or their shipping policy or things like that. So even though right now we have this global model, it is also interesting to consider the alternatives and potentially future work to consider these more fine-grained models that or the ways we can define intents so we can kind of explore more use cases there. Yeah, in a kind of different direction kind of something that I think may not be as appreciated by people who haven't <laughs> had to do the work of going through and labeling thousands of examples like like David and Tianxing and Smith have is uh, it's actually sometimes hard to like to find the boundaries of what, what what intents are and it can be very confusing to try to assign you know one of two categories that might be both relevant I think Tianxing gave the example earlier of 
an intent of like, you know, having a problem with the coupon versus an intent of asking for a new coupon. And you can imagine like there, there are ways of phrasing that where like you're really right on the border between the two. So part of the iterative process of defining your, your intents is also just making sure that you can actually explain to another person the rationale behind where to draw that line. And if it's very difficult to explain that rationale, that might be a hint that you might actually want to reassess the intents that you've chosen because at the end of the day, you want these intents to be like reproducible, right? If like a person can't reproduce these given all the human knowledge that they have, it's hard to ask uh, an algorithm to to make the distinction. So generally, how does all this differ from traditional automated responses? What are the advantages of an intent classification model for automating business communication? I think a big one is customer satisfaction in a way. It can be really frustrating and feel like you're talking to a robot when you have to go through a tree and you just keep sending different numbers that represent what you want to say. And this sort of intent classification model breaks that open and allows you to communicate how you would prefer to communicate and still ideally receive the response that you want to get. In addition to being a lot more flexible than the the tree-based approaches where you're limited to only the options that you've been given. Yeah, another problem that I could see with other similar features out there is that a lot of times they're very generic. So when there is a suggestion response, they're not like the way you would text, but just everyone would text. Uh, an example, you know, would be if someone asked, hey, can I get some help? The suggestion response would be like, yeah, sure, we can help you. But then I'll that might not be a way that you text or how you want your business to text. So a way to kind of break that very generic way of responding is by kind of using the intended classification to fit their specific business needs by kind of taking account of what the historical responses a particular business had and use that. And another example would be uh, related to that uh, return policy that I mentioned earlier, where different businesses might have completely different answers. Some businesses might not even have a return policy. So you can't really generalize that more than the account level. So what you want to do is just make sure that the response is specific to each business and each account so that the customer can actually get an answer that they care about and not just something very generic that wouldn't help with their use case. So I'm curious... You mentioned before that this data often has abbreviations, grammatical errors, and shorthand that may differ from standard structured written text. And before recording this, uh, you all mentioned that there are a lot of emojis in the data and and things like that. How did you all deal with this? How did you pre-process this data so that it can be useful in classifying intents? It's uh, still in progress. Currently, our model can take into account of messages only made of emojis because they're relatively easy to classify and we can just use rule-based classification to return a result. But when an emoji is embedded into a longer message with text, it's a lot harder to deal with. One shortcoming is that if you use a a pre-trained model, sometimes it's not trained with emoji data, so it's having trouble with embeddings. But also, if you want to find a shortcut by, let's say, use an extra step to translate that emoji into a text representation of the emoji, 
you would think that that would help. But it turned out that if you do that, what happens is the model tend to be even more sensitive to the emoji part. And that might not be what you want. So let's say, let's give another example. You have this message, can I get a coupon? And you append it with like a thinking face emoji versus the same message, but you prevent or you append it with, let's say like a praying hand emoji, then the intent shouldn't change, but the model is learning the emoji and it's actually putting more weight on the emoji that it became less confident that these two messages are the same intent because it might think, okay, the emoji is, is different. So by the nature of the intents, maybe they're, they're different as well. So it's a problem that we're trying to solve. I'm just curious, what would be an example of a message that is all emoji? I can see how an emoji with text can be kind of ambiguous. What's a message that's all emoji and what intent would that be classified as? So currently, if you send a heart by itself, we classify it as general love. Okay. And then if you have like a thumbs up, we classify it as okay. But they're early stage and it's just something that we think represents the data right now that we see, but it might not be true in the future. I think on a related note, related to kind of very specific to the use case here, one thing that you brought up when we were discussing this model was the way you evaluate this model's results is highly tailored to the use case you have here. How and why was that? So our use case of the model was suggesting responses, right? So we wanted to make sure that when we suggest something, we should be confident that it is correct. So when evaluating the model, we only consider a model's output correct if it is very confident that it belongs to a specific intent. So then we measure a metric called precision, which measures what percentage of the positive identifications are correct. So that's how we make sure that our model doesn't get a lot. Like if it suggests response, it doesn't suggest an invalid response. Yeah, and to build on that, there's often a trade-off between precision and recall. Uh, so recall is a measure of out of the, you know, let's say there's like a ground truth set of intents that are that are, are just true for, for the data. How, how many does the model actually return as opposed to, you know, potentially abstaining, which is something that the model can do if it's not high confidence. And so there's, when, when, you, when you calibrate your model, there's a trade-off between precision and recall. And typically you can get higher precision if you're willing to pay for lower recall and uh, vice versa. And so, as Smith mentioned, like for you can think about your specific use case. What is the trade-off that you're willing to tolerate? And in this case of suggesting responses, we are choosing to prioritize precision over recall for this use case. Yeah, and then another uh, interesting thing that that we came across was that different intents actually might cause the model to have different performance. So. Some intents are relatively easy to classify, like yes, no, okay, things like that. But they're also intents that are really hard to, to classify and they have a lot of variations. So when we evaluate a model performance, we use the combination of evaluating the overall performance across all intents and also looking at each individual intent's performance and make sure that satisfies bottom line so that it's not heavily skewed toward the, the easy intents and skipping the hard problem. 
So there's a lot of complexity here, obviously. We have complexity in how it's evaluated. You have complexity in the data itself. What are some of the other challenges that you faced while you were building the intent classification model? I think one thing on top of my head is just how time consuming it is to annotate the data. For most of the time, we spend our time to annotate it, but it might not necessarily be scalable in the future. So, yeah. I think another challenge is that we're trying to build, sort of as Chenxing mentioned, this like global model that will be beneficial for all of our customers. But our customers are in a ton of different verticals. So you might imagine that the types of messages going to non-e-commerce companies are very different than the ones going to e-commerce companies. So when we make intents around shipping or orders, that works well for the e-commerce use case, but it's kind of a challenge to expand this global model to work well for like maybe coursework-based companies or life coaches who are getting very different inbound messages. Another challenge is annotation. So, you know, definitely in the early stages of these kinds of projects, data scientists will do the annotations themselves. But if you want to get really large data sets, that becomes cost prohibitive at some point. And so you have to think about what are ways to mitigate the costs associated with annotation. Another big challenge was coming up with new intents, as you can imagine. We had to manually go through a lot of data to be able to find a pattern and think about a new intent. So to mitigate that, we decided to utilize another Clavio feature called Quick Responses, where customers can have a set of predefined responses to specific kind of messages, right? Uh, so we collect the data whenever a customer responds with a quick response. And that way, now we only have to go through a list of quick responses and we can identify what kinds of messages do people want to respond to. And this way, we are also able to automatically label all of this data in case we come up with a new intent. Yeah, and I, I think that that kind of gets at obviously an important thing here. We've been focusing a lot on the data science side here and the data science work here is important, but it's only part of the story. As we talked about before, this isn't just some data science model that's running on some secret server somewhere. This is a feature that we want to be usable by customers. It needs to actually service to them in some way. What were some of the engineering challenges that you faced getting this feature up and running? Yeah, it can take us off. I think another topic that we focused on was build out a scalable machine learning infrastructure. So that involves building out a model registry that manages different iterations of the model and also a model serving framework. So where we want to support real-time inference for every single time uh, inbound message comes in to Playview. Yeah, and related to that in supporting real-time inference, it's super important to have low latency because we don't want to delay the time it takes a message to get to our, our customers uh, when someone sends something in. So working to have yeah, a framework that, that can do all of these things and also do them very quickly was really important. Yeah, over a longer time horizon, we also want to be able to iterate on models, do things like you know test new models in production, have like a staging environment so that we can experiment with models without completely swapping out 
the the ones that we know have been in you know have been working in production previously. So there are a lot of kind of yeah a lot of ways that you can kind of deploy models in different configurations to be able to learn and to improve over time. So as we've discussed a few times here today, this work was recently released and the project is still evolving. What comes next for the project and what would you like to see in future releases? So as we discussed earlier, you can tell that these intents could be very specific to each business and they might not be anywhere close to the global set of intents that we've identified. So the next steps for us working on finding ways to make these intents a little more business specific so that it tailors to every one of our customers individually uh, rather than having like a global set of intents. Another area is to further utilize intent classification beyond um, just suggesting response in a two-way conversation. An example would be uh, using the intent to trigger some automated flow so that the business doesn't have to have any kind of intervention in how the response is um, surfaced to the user. So they can predefine a set of actions triggered by when an intent is identified in the inbound message. Some examples could be if they if they wanted to opt out, but they actually typed it, they actually had a typo. It's not automatically recognized by the carrier, but it is something that we can identify using the intent classification. This work is, in the grand scheme of things, still pretty new. As we discussed in the previous episode, NLP is really a cutting-edge field, and it only became possible to solve these kinds of problems effectively in the last several years. I know, you know, most of my automated interactions with businesses are still on phone trees, and I'm ready for us to make the change. What do you see as some of the future for intent classification, either within this specific use case or outside of it? So in our specific use case, I want intent classification model to become a lot more confident to identify intents for most messages. So like Dave mentioned earlier, we want the precision recall trade-off to narrow down and be able to have high recall, identify intents confidently for most messages. So once we are that confident in our models, we can automatically now send responses without a business having to click on a response uh, and send a message. Mopo very interested in uh, sentiment analysis and potentially using it as pulse check for the business. And another area that I'm interested in is internalization. So multiple language support. So that it's not geared towards just English users, but it could be for other users as well. I think one way that NLP in general and intent classification, maybe in particular, can be expanded is to use additional context. So whether that's the form of additional conversational context by, by looking back in the history of the, of the conversation or by actually incorporating context from other systems. So, you know, for for Clavio, we have this massive event stream that we can use to see customers' behavior and being able to integrate that into the classification process so that we can infer when a customer is talking about an order, like we can actually see what 
you know, we can look up and see which order that is. I think that would be very powerful. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Dave. I think there's really great opportunity in intent classification to be able to have it mesh well with tabular data. So if you say, when will my order be shipping and have that trigger some process to look up their most recent order and the shipping status, it would be super powerful and help make communications with business a lot more satisfying so you don't have to go through that long tree-based approach. Well, hopefully we get to see some of that evolve over time. And I'm sure once it does, we can go ahead and pull you back on the podcast and ask you about it then. But in the meantime, that is the end of the time we have today. I want to thank all of the panel for being here and discussing intent classification and, and this particular interesting use case of machine learning with us. So thank you all for being on the podcast and uh, thank you for being here. This episode was sponsored by Clavio, as all episodes of the Clavio Data Science Podcast are. Clavio is a unified customer platform for email, SMS, and more, and empowers online brands to own their data and grow on their own terms. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast. You should be able to do that just about anywhere you listen to the podcast. Also consider leaving us a rating or a review. Those help us in the algorithm so more people can hear content like what you just heard today. Obviously, a great way to help people hear content like what you heard today is if you have someone in your life that you think would be interested in hearing this episode about intent classification, go ahead and send it to them. You know, that could be a coworker, could be a family member, could be a classmate, whoever it is. If you think that they're interested, just go ahead and drop them the link. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything you've heard on the episode today, then the best person to contact is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. The Twitter address is Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for listening. Have a great month. Bye.